right, welcome back to episode four of the Web3 show. We're back here on call-in. And of course, I'm here with the wannabe wizards of Web3, uh, myself, Luca. I've got Galactic Q from the Red Pull Warehouse and uh, your guy in Trad5 <laughs> from his uh, nondescript boardroom on Wall Street coming at you with another, with another episode covering all things in Web3. Uh, boys, I don't know about you, but I'm super happy to be on. This is like my de-stress half an hour, 40 minutes this evening, uh, writing my <laughs> my last set of fiat exams, as I as I was telling you guys offline. Um, so I'm super happy to, to be here uh, again for another episode. Hope you guys are feeling well, uh, well rested and ready for another for another jam-packed and efficient episode. Um, we'll be getting straight into it. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, I these introductions get these introductions get more and more creative every week. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm trying my best. I have to. Uh, I have to keep coming up with new introductions for you guys. Don't worry. There, there's more to come. Uh, well, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna dive straight into it. Um, obviously, it was Black Friday this past weekend, but that obviously uh, you know spread into the crypto and stock markets because everything was on sale this past weekend. I don't want to say there's blood in the streets. Uh, Q will confirm that for us. But uh, John T, do you want to take us through the market watch for this week? What on earth happened last week? And uh, why was there such a big dip? Yeah, 100%. So, I mean, you know, as, as I discussed in the podcast uh, last week, Monday, uh, we were expecting that pullback down to that 53, 52K zone. And ultimately, we wicked, consolidated, wicked again, and then bounced on that 53K level. It's actually 53.4 to be precise. Um, so it was basically textbook uh, pullback that we were looking for. We came down to retest the macro channel um, that we've been moving up in. Um, and I think bottom is in for the most part. But yeah, ultimately, I think a lot of the volatility last week came with the new variant of this, this virus going around the world, as well as the futures closeouts and some uncertainty as to whether the vaccine is you know, looking after what's going to take care of this new variant. So there was a bit of blood in the street across the board uh, for most markets. But ultimately, crypto bounced back strong and, you know, took the opportunity to have its textbook retest. So basically what we're seeing in the charts now is a beautiful bounce from that 52K, 53K zone. We've come up, we're busy retesting trend. Um, a break here would send us up to blue sky scenario and new all-time highs. Um, what we're noticing as well is that the dominance is remaining steady, which means that there's still a lot of confidence in the altcoins and most OG and seasoned traders still have confidence in the markets and aren't capitulating into Bitcoin or stablecoins. We can also see the stablecoin dominance decreasing, which means people are buying back into the markets. So this is telling me that a bottom is in. So I'm all time frames long for the week. Great. And that fits into the narrative of you saying sort of going into that next bull run cycle. And um, it made me think that the, the theme of the week was uh, BTFD. And for those people who aren't familiar with, <laughs> with crypto acronyms, it's <laughs> buy the something dip. Uh, you can figure out the rest. <laughs> um, wasn't, that, wasn't that the name, the name of the, um, the ETF, BTFD as well? Was it actually what? What? Yeah, yes, that was the yes, ticker. Yeah, they yes. changed the ticker to BTFD. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, I mean, the meme section was meant to be for the end, but I mean, that's a great <laughs> one. I didn't actually come across that. Oh, that's great. But, uh, well, cool. Just thanks, on thanks that, they actually, the... yeah, they actually made an official announcement go, go, stating go. stating that they were going to change. They changed the ticker to BTFD for the sole purpose to relate to the meme culture of crypto. So they they published that, but I mean. <laughs> I mean, the you know, the meme, I've, I've seen this quote float around Twitter a while ago, that uh, the meme is the message, uh, you know, and if you understand the meme, you understand culture. <laughs> and I think it's so true. Like, it, you know what I mean? If you if you don't, if you don't understand memes, you can't have a ch chance of like, you know, having, you know, your fingers on the pulse and understanding what's going on around you in this, especially in this space, uh, you know, currency, the memes is the way of communicating. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's great stuff. But yeah, thanks Q for that market watch update. Um, yeah, as always, the the next one will be coming in 
uh, next week, Monday, like clockwork. But yeah, let's dive straight into the first topic for this week, boys. Um, we've got something crazy happened in the Axie Infinity world. Um, for people who don't know Axie Infinity, it's probably the most popular uh, play-to-earn, basically crypto-native game um, where users uh, play the game. I'm not too familiar with the inner workings and what actually I've never actually tried out the game before, but basically players play the game and they can earn these, uh, you know, tokens or something called, what are they called again? Secret love potions or something. And they can exchange those for cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency and NFTs within the game. And this is this whole concept of GameFi that we'll be diving into now. But basically last week, there was a plot of virtual land that sold for a record $2.4 million. This broke about uh, around last week, uh, Thursday. And, uh, that, that's the record price was about 550 ETH. So guys, walk us through quickly, you know, what actually happened here, what, and sort of like give some context to, you know, this event and why it's so significant. Well, I mean, you know, let's, let's kind of view, well, let's take it a step back. Um, you know, the, the media states that a piece of land in a virtual world was sold for $2.4 million. But, you know, what they don't explain is why, um, you know, besides the fact that that piece of land was part of a Genesis sector of the Axie Infinity land, um, which obviously means it's, it's got rarer, rarer traits, you could call it. But, you know, ultimately, Axie Infinity is originally GameFi. Uh, it's a play-to-earn model, as you mentioned. Um, it's not necessarily a metaverse until they slapped the metaverse logo on a couple months ago and start introducing these land parcels. Now, Axie Infinity is still in the development of launching their gaming, uh, gaming uh, play models on these land parcels. So right now, it's still quite new. Um, and that's why the Axie Infinity land is so highly valued. It's quite a hot demand at the moment. But if we take a step back and look at the OGs in the space, such as Decentraland and Sandbox, these are probably two of the biggest metaverse ecosystems. And you know they're based on this limited land sale model where you basically buy this virtual property and you can view it as an NFT. So it's, it's basically just introducing another application to NFTs. You know, most people view NFTs as digital art um, or collectibles. So virtual real estate and land is another application of them. And basically each land parcel uh, is formed as its own sort of verified NFT, which means that each land parcel, obviously, as we know, non-fungible tokens are completely unique and can't be duplicated. Um, so basically what you can do with this land is endless. You know, the, the application of the land is limited to the creativity of the owner, which is pretty awesome. So you as the owner of this land parcel can build, create, set rules, do whatever you would like. You can limit access. You can, you know, give full access. You can build virtual art galleries where people can come and sell their NFTs or display their NFTs. You can, you know, generate certain shops, sell virtual goods. You can sell real world items, etc. Like the, the bounds of the metaverse are endless. And, you know, these land parcels make, well, kind of introduce a lot more application into the metaverse structure. Um, and I mean, if we just look at some of the big things that have happened in the metaverse, besides, you know, this Axie Infinity plot of land selling for $2.4 million, I mean, you've got, you know, tokens.com that, you know, purchased a $2.5 million plot in the Decentraland ecosystem. And basically, this was on the, the fashion street sector of Decentraland. And ultimately, they want to use this plot of land for virtual fashion shows. You know, you got Playboy that hosted a Miami Beach themed art exhibition in Decentraland. You know, you've got Atari that partnered with Decentraland to launch the first metaverse based casino. Um, you know, there's, there's the um, metaverse developer company called Republic Realm, which originally had the last, largest land sale um, price of $1 million that they paid to build a virtual shopping mall where people could then rent space from the shopping mall to sell their virtual goods. So it's basically another bridge from the real world. It's this, it's this building out of the parallel universe. And, you know, I mean, if you look at land purchases today in, in, in the tangible world, you know, you, you've got title deeds, you've got paperwork, you've got all these different things. 
land purchases in the metaverse in the virtual world, you don't sit with any of those issues. It's as simple as a swap, ETH for an NFT. And it's pretty amazing what's being built out there, especially when it comes to the real world application that's been introduced to it. And Georgie, that's, that's quite, it's, it's a really great way you've put that across and just putting, putting context to, to sort of the, the scale at which this is happening and, you know, putting some generic use, well, I mean, not generic, but I mean, general use cases. And it's interesting how that comes across though, from me and, and sort of let me frame this the correct way in that you drew parallels, direct parallels from the analog world to the digital world, buying real estate digital real estate like basically i don't know um you know like a big building on piccadilly circus but in the digital piccadilly circus a real a really popular place in the center of london you know where uh, all those billboards are and stuff but having that prime real estate in the metaverse or, or you know the digital world and then sort of building that on into it and like using that in ways that we only know in the analog world. And that brings me, that made me think of like that conversation. I, th I think we all listened to it uh, when Chris Dixon went on Tim Ferriss with uh, Naval as well. What's an amazing conversation and how he sort of framed it this way that like NFTs are sort of these, you know, web page building blocks of everything. And, and the things that people are going to do on top, like build on top of NFTs is endless. So, I mean, maybe it's a bit of a bit of a maybe it'll end up being a bit of a nothing point, but it's fascinating to think about like what is going to come next for these sort of things that we have no idea. Like there must be things that are coming that we just have no clue that are going to be built. You know what I mean? We have no idea how they're going to work. It's just going to be completely new in this world. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on that? And I mean, it, it comes back to this whole composability thing where, where everything's interacting. You know, you have, I don't know, potential bridges between all these different metaverses and everything's going to be built on top of these, you know, these, uh, you know, these essential building blocks, this digital real estate. I mean, yeah, I, I think the plug and play point you mentioned, Lucas, is key. And I think I'm optimistic on NFTs in general. Um, just because, like, I mean, an NFT is basically uh, a blank script, right? It can be anything. I think if, if you drill down one level deeper and you say land, um, I, I mean, I think land within play to earn, kind of the value proposition is, is clear to me. I think land in general, in some abstract kind of metaverse, I think the value proposition is a, is a bit less clear to me because it's, 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 easier to bring an avatar into a new ecosystem than it is to bring a parcel of land right so i think if if you're going in if the community is built up around kind of generating economic value i, I think there's there's quite a bit of risk in the sense that if the buy side collapses you know the people with the nfts which can plug and play into other platforms will jump ship and if you're a landholder um you got empty handed effectively but i luca put it give an example of that what you what you mean in terms of like are you saying in terms of like if i own a yeah, part if, of land if in you if you Axie, buy a shopping mall in decentraland right um and the way it works is basically if if you have an avatar you can go into the shopping mall and you can buy digital goods the, there's an infinite amount of metaverse technically, which, which could be built, right? So I, I think it's pretty hard to, to value digital land in that sense. Like it's not finite. Someone could build a complete parallel universe, which has, you know, better functionality or, or just works smoother, feels better, right? And everyone jumps ship. And you're holding this, this land, which you can't port. You're holding the bag. bag. So, so I think I think there's a lot of risk when it's not inherently a part of some sort of play to earn mechanism. Right? That's like, fascinating. It's yeah. fascinating. I mean, I, I don't fully agree with that. Um, I think you're making a valuable <laughs> point with, with GameFi, but I, I just have to make my point. 
like GameFi brings a new level of utility, correct? But I don't think that there's necessarily as much risk sitting on a land parcel as yes, the metaverse is going to be infinitely large. You know, it can be continually built out. But certain land parcel platforms are finite. You know, Sandbox will never generate more land parcels because it's fixed. It's like Bitcoin supply. There'll never be more. And if you look at where the big names is, you've got to remember first mover advantage as well. So maybe five years down the line, when there's hundreds of metaverses out there, it's going to become a risky factor. But right now, I mean, if you buy a land and piece of land and sandbox, within one hour, you can build a, a skyscraper with 50 office floors and rent each office space out to the likes of, look what Blocktopia did, renting office space out in their skyscrapers to CoinMarketCap, to, you know, uh, KuCoin. You know, you, 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 the, the application of owning land you can draw a parallel to buying a shopping mall in, in, in the real world. You know, it's, it's all going to boil down to where that land is. And if you're buying Sandbox, look at yeah. it buying Manhattan. But if you're buying some random metaverse project, you might be buying in the middle of the desert somewhere where no one wants to be. So I think, I think, I think that's a fair point. I mean, I think, I think it's a fair point. At the same time, I mean, how quickly does crypto evolve? Like if you look at projects True. like two years ago, Right. I mean, it's the classic uh, example, you know, that most of the altcoins in the 2017 rally uh, aren't here anymore today. All, all I'm all I'm saying is these prices which are being paid. Um, I, I personally can't can't really reconcile them. No, I, I 100% agree with that. I think everything is largely way overvalued because of the current market structure that we're in. So I definitely agree. Paying $2.4 million is, is unfinished. I, I hear you with the finite supply thing, but I think, I think the key thing is within sandbox. You know, if you look at Bitcoin, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins, right, universally. And these Bitcoins can enter all these different metaverses in one form or another, but this kind of central protocol is kind of predetermined. It's deterministic. Like I just think, yeah, I'd, land in the metaverse for me is still very abstract. Although I fully agree with your points. But also, also remember that, you know, play to earn can be developed on these plant parcels. You know, GameFi is not, GameFi is bound. Metaverse is not. Each land parcel can generate its own level of GameFi. So when it comes to blockchain gaming, I mean, if you look at Net Network, basically what they're doing is they're selling land parcels and NFT-based structures that are hard-code games. And people can then buy those gaming-based structures as land parcels and develop their play-to-earn features on those land parcels. So, so the application for land is not literally land. It's, it's a development base. It's your secured spot in this ecosystem that you can then build whatever you want and you're only limited by your creativity. So while I think Axie is amazing because they've got the GameFi base, you know, I think projects that start with the metaverse and then build the GameFi on top are gonna have incredible utility for those land parcels. Yeah, and I mean, but it's, it's, guys, it's, this is fascinating because my head, I'm like scratching my head constantly here going back and forth. But I mean, just to, I think also just to go back with what Luca was saying, I was in agreement with Luca's initial initial point from the perspective of like, and Jonty, I also see your point, but but the fact is that like what, you, you mentioned Sandbox, like buying, you know, land in Sandbox or Decentraland, like, yeah, because those are the two most well-known right now. But if we draw parallels to Bitcoin, like what makes them, Bitcoin right now that, you know, the, the parallel, um, like, is that, is that still, does that still have to be built out? Does that sort of consensus that, yes, this is the, the flagship metaverse property. Is this the Manhattan of the metaverse? Everyone needs to own land. And then obviously they have their own supply constraints within the metaverse to create value, but that's going to be interesting as well. Aren't we going to go through, a couple more years of market disc or not necessarily market discovery, but just like sort of consumer discovery in terms of like how 
the more people people and users come into the space, um, there'll be that process of, you know, elimination and sort of elim- yeah, eliminating basically the people or the, the platforms that the, the market doesn't want to be or doesn't want to participate in. Uh, you know, but Bitcoin was chosen as the, the greatest straw uh, yeah. over all of the other cryptocurrencies over multiple years. Well, again, that that boils down to first mover advantage. You know, Bitcoin was chosen as a store of value because there were no competitors to compete with it until Ethereum came along and ultimately became a programmable Bitcoin. You know, and, and yes, Ethereum, and then they Ethereum both executed a, on that. They both did, and remember, yeah. Ethereum's not a fixed supply. Ethereum's constantly emitting, you know, new ETH into the market every day. So it would never be a good store of value because, you know, it's it's got constant emission rates. So there's always supply coming in. John T. But not to get sidetracked on, was... that, on that point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just going to ask, John T., if you stood in front of me and looked me straight in the eyes, could you tell me that 99% of land sales today are not just cash grabs? No, I couldn't tell you that because they are. Yeah. <laughs> no, 100% they are. But I mean, what's happening in the space, you know, to, to, to turn back to what Vasella was saying there, um, is this is Bitcoin in 2012, 2013. It is so early. So I think I, think I do cross agreement with everyone saying that, you know, what we see today is going to be very different to what we see in five years' time. And that's fair. But it's just crazy to think that right now people are buying virtual super yachts for 650k, you know, which are part of a string of luxury islands in a digital code, <laughs> you know, built by, you know, uh, Metaverse Rob or, or the, the company that's developing all these luxury islands that are selling out within 24 hours in a digital space. It's crazy. And I think this is just the start of something massive. And I think one shouldn't underestimate the value of the land as that's the base building block of what could be something mind-blowing. But yes, right, just to, right now just to emphasize, <laughs> just, yeah, just to <laughs> emphasize that 650,000 US dollars, basically. Yeah, it's <laughs> a lot of money for, for a <laughs> pile of pixels <laughs> in an imaginary ocean. Well, hey, you got guys buying CryptoPunks for, you know, multi-millions of dollars. Yes, but, but I think the key difference the there is those, those, those can travel with time. Like, what are you going to do with, with a, a yacht and an island? Like, I, I just feel like the possibilities, the possibilities you of remember plug that, and play just kind of reduce. Yeah. No, I, I understand and I agree. You know, there, there are limitations, but I don't think we can compare them directly. They're very different applications of what an NFT is. And you must remember that, you know, Bored Apes, Bored Apes utility comes because there's a metaverse. You know, the community around Bored Apes is huge, but what is Bored Ape besides a profile picture without the metaverse? The metaverse is what brings... Well, I would almost argue, I would actually argue, I would actually argue and, and just push back slightly on that, John, that... Board Apes has now, yes, it started as that, what you're saying, but now it's got this huge cultural relevance and this yeah. huge, like, you know, social relevance, which is, I think it's, it's so big. It's so big, you know, like, why do, why do users, why did users flock to Facebook in the early days? It's because they had, you know, it became culturally relevant to be on Facebook because all of your friends were on Facebook, you know, Jimmy Fallon's in Board Apes, uh, you know, all the rest are in board apps, so that's why that's why it has that's why yeah. it has value um, now. But yes, it it started. But one, it's one the thing, fundamentally what you what you outlined. Yeah, I mean, if you if you hop on an avatar and run through the central land, you'll see a lot of the art galleries are filled with board ape yacht club artwork. Now, where would those be hung if we if we didn't have that? You know, who built that art gallery for people yeah. to sell? these artworks in a virtual space, not just over open sea. So I think, I think everything's very early. Well, the, yeah, there we go. Everything's very early. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of development to come. And I think that these land parcels are going to have a huge relevance when it comes to the value realization of what the metaverse is going to be. 
Yeah, and just just to round out that, like I think that just summarizes really well the implications of this land sale and what is going on in, in Metaverse in GameFi. So, you know, and and like like we said already, it's things a year, two years, three years down the line are going to be fundamentally different. And I still believe, like what Chris Dixon said, you know, we don't know what is going to be the norm, what is going to be built. Like, yes, you can sort of visualize these these sort of analog things in the digital world, but that's not necessarily native to the internet, to the metaverse. We don't even know what's native to the metaverse yet. Um, and we're still we're still going to figure that out. Um, again, something Chris Dixon referenced on his interview with Tim Ferriss. And I highly recommend people go listen to that. It's, a, it's an eye-opener. Um, but yeah, I mean, moving on and sort of tying the thread between these two topics, the, the next topic we'll be, we'll be touching on um, centers around IP rights. And I think a lot of what we're seeing with Axie, with Board Apes, is this explosion of IP. I mean, you go on OpenSea or Immutable X or any of these NFT platforms and you literally see, you know, thousands of different proje- projects vying for attention. And, you know, some of them have insane floor prices already, just insane valuations. And to me, I thought of that, okay, this is all IP that, you know, 90% of them is are probably going to be irrelevant in three years' time, but there'll be, there could potentially be a new Disney, a new Marvel, a new whatever, you you know, I don't know, whoever, whoever's sort of relevant in pop culture. And something we're seeing as well is, you know, old established brands and you know people who are relevant in pop culture moving into the nft space and we saw something really interesting about two weeks ago three weeks ago quentin tarantino was trying to drop uh, his own nft project which was basically uh, a drop that would feature uncut scenes and secret content from the film pulp fiction i know this is really embarrassing i love tarantino's movies but i've never actually watched pulp fiction it's i'm really embarrassed about it Please don't hate on me. No. <laughs> I'm not, man. I know, it's terrible. <laughs> I think you need it's to, terrible. I, know, I think you I need to take a break from your study. And, and I, I, I agree. <laughs> oh, please, anything. Well, anyway, Tarantino was going to drop this NFT project, and he then got sued by Miramax, the studio that produced the movie, basically saying that he doesn't have the rights over the property, over the IP, to actually go and do this and potentially create a more economic value out of Miramax's property in inverted commas. Now there was the argument that came that came back from Tarantino saying, oh well these are you know these are my own writing. I'm creating the NFT drop out of my own sort of uh writing and my own content, which was never published, was which was never put forward into the script and it was never produced. Therefore I own this stuff. And not to get too legal, but basically Miramax disagreed and they and they sued and they sued him. Now, guys, what are you what were your like initial reactions to this? And then I'll build out the the broader context why I think this is so relevant. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe just a just a comment uh, in general. I mean, I guess. Quentin Tarantino probably needed Miramax back in the day. Um, and the kind of trade that happened was he gave them his creative ideas and they gave him a platform, effectively. Um, I mean, these days, you've you've got these decentralized applications which are kind of letting you go direct to consumer, which wasn't kind of possible um, when Tarantino started out. So I guess these days... These days you've got an option, but you've got all these legacy artists locked into their contracts. And I mean, to be frank, you know, Tarantino signed away the IP rights to the Pulp Fiction law and an ecosystem. So, I mean, I think Miramax is well within their right to, to sue him, to be honest. Yeah, I think I think I agree. And I think, you know, Miramax kind of also needs to protect themselves. Because they've obviously not only worked with Quentin Tarantino, you know, I would, I would, you could assume they've worked with other very well-known, you know, directors and producers and stuff. And, you know, if, if, if Quentin Tarantino is able to take, you know, portions of what they technically own, 
you know, what precedent does that set for all the other people they've worked with? Can then everyone just, you know, hop up and say, oh, we're going to sell these now as well. And I, I think, you know, maybe maybe there's a bit of gray area with the fact that, you know, Quentin Tarantino did, you know, not necessarily submit those scenes uh, to be produced. So technically he may still own those uncut scripts, but Miramax definitely owns the IP when it comes to Pulp Fiction. So selling those under the Pulp Fiction brand or, or banner maybe what's causing the havoc. Um, yeah, just my take. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the super interesting context for me, though, like the bigger context that I think about when I saw this is that, okay, well, you know, here, here we have a director of, of movies who is insanely culturally, culturally relevant. I mean, this guy literally has a cult following you know, in, in the art world and in, in, the, in the film industry. And, you know, he's got this whole thing about he's only going to create ever direct and produce 10 movies ever. I think he's on number eight or number nine now. So he's almost like a complete anomaly in just the way that he produces his movies. And he's like, I couldn't imagine a more perfect person to actually come out and create their own NFT drop um, and just come into the space with something with a really unique project. And it makes me think like the people who, or the, the entities that are, that stand to benefit the most from the NFT re revolution, what's going on in the whole digital space is are the companies and the people who are the most culturally relevant at the moment. And you have the most valuable intellectual properties. Think of Adidas, think of Nike, Think of Marvel, think of Disney. I mean, I honestly think, like, I'm a weird fact about me. I'm a huge Marvel fanboy. If Marvel came out tomorrow and said, we're dropping a limited edition um, Robert Downey Jr. inspired Tony Stark Iron Man NFT drop, you know, when he had the, the Infinity Stone glove on and, you know, in, in the last big Avengers movie, I would, I would be there. I would be getting my NFT, like like quicker than you can say uh fiat money <laughs> i don't know but uh no, but, <laughs> no one wants but, to no. say that word <laughs> but listen but but this is what i'm saying is that like i think these players are the biggest but, ones but Luke, to, to, to benefit yeah sorry q but I, I mean when when you look when you look at ip i think when you adapt that to the decentralized world you've got to view it differently you know, you can't view what we see IP as in the in the centralized, more traditional world. Because, you know, when you sell an NFT, you buy the IP rights to an artwork. Yes, you don't own the brand name. Yes, you don't own the Board Ape Yacht Club, you know, logo. And you can't sell under their name. But you own the IP and the right to your ape. You know, you can then go sell that ape. And this is where they've developed what we call royalties. You know, back in the day, if... Van Gogh sold a painting for a hundred dollars and today they sell for hundreds of millions, he would have ever only received that hundred dollars. But today when you sell a board ape, the ape company that formulated, uh, was it Lava Labs, they still earn a kickback, 5%. So, you know, in my mind, you kind of view it as shared IP. And it comes on the basis of decentralization being an open source ecosystem where everything's community driven, not necessarily soul driven. And I think, you know, if, if Marvel had to produce a Marvel metaverse, for one, I'll be the first buyer in there ahead of you. Um, <laughs> um, but but I would buy up those NFTs. And Let's chat about that. I highly disagree. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe just maybe just one point. I think, you know, on that, on the whole topic of your buying IP rights, it's like that coffee company, I think it's in the US. Uh, it's, it's one of the board apps. I, I think it's so interesting because, by basically allowing the hold of that board ape to build a coffee company around the board ape, you know, it's creating value for the holder, uh, but it's also creating value for the company behind the NFTs. So kind of by passing on exactly. the IP rights, yeah, it's, um, because of the whole kickback idea, uh, the entire network benefits effectively. Exactly. It becomes a shared IP. You know, yes. everything is built yes. together. It's community driven. It's community owned. And it's it moves away from the traditional way of thinking where I created this, I own it, I will always have the IP to we created or, or, this, you know. 
yeah, although I, I, I will say uh, there's a broad range of implementations um, of royalties. I mean, there are plenty of NFT projects where holders benefit very little. Um, you know, you, you've got you've got varying setups effectively. So I think a best case is something like Board well, Ape, where you pass on the IP rights effectively, allowing you to build value around this with the with the rise of the kind of brand, uh, so to speak. Um, but yeah, definitely. Yeah, and guys, I, I mean, I I completely agree with both your points. Um, and Johnty, especially, you know, I appreciate, you know, I I missed out, you know, so sort of covering that angle of yes. The emphasis needs to be more now about the community, about building up value for the user as well as the, you know, the IP right owner. And where where I think this this idea came from is that I honestly think these are the these are the people who are going to take the stuff mainstream. I think right. Imagine how many people would flood into the NFT and crypto space if Tarantino makes a drop, if Marvel makes a drop, if Taylor Swift made an NFT drop, like made a you know yeah. Uh, dropped an NFT project. It's huge. It's it's massive for the space, and I and I think that they they have an obligation to then be inclusive about the value that they um, distribute to their community and to the the holders of their NFTs. I hundred percent agree with that. I'm not more saying like oh Tarantino, yes. you know, should go in and take it all for himself. I think they need to come in with a mindset of you know, shared value instead of centralized value to themselves, which will be quite tricky because that's how that's how the game's always been. Um, and it's going to be a double-edged sword because yes, they'll bring tons of users, but will it just be another cash grab? Like we chatted about all the celebrities shilling NFT projects for their own game last week. Um, so I, I yeah, I, I think it's going to be an interesting interesting one to watch. I mean, you know, direct yeah. comparison there is look at Meta. You know, they, they're coming into the so-called metaverse, not with the best interest of the one metaverse that we all want. You know, the metaverse where it's community-governed, open-source, shared, like, you know, community-driven. Rather, they bring... Well, allegedly. This, let's allegedly. see Let's see what they actually do. Ra- rather, there's more of a centralized narrative coming to a metaverse when yeah. it comes to its meta. But I guess it's early. So there may be further development. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the other then there's the other aspect which which I wanted to touch on as well is we saw crypto.com buying uh the rights to the Staples Center. Um what was it, the LA Lakers NBA stadium? I could be botching this completely. Um, but basically going to rename it I think it is the the Lakers uh NBA basketball stadium, rename from the Staples Center to crypto.com arena for the next 20 years um they bought the rights for 700 million dollars basically and that's that's also huge that's also that's also massive and and that that made that made me think is it like okay well are these crypto companies maybe coinbase also making moves with the nba becoming like uh you know the main affiliate or sponsor um the crypto the main crypto sponsor of the nba um are these crypto companies that have like massive valuations and huge access to funding, are they just going to go buy the IP themselves and do what they wish with them? Um, because I mean, obviously, you know, the Staples Center isn't necessarily IP, but the, the LA Lakers is, Kobe Bryant is. So, you know, that's also an interesting case study to see what that brings. Or is that just a massive marketing effort on crypto.com's part? Um because I don't know if you guys saw as well that ad they ran with Matt Damon. <laughs> it's quite quite funny. Uh, actually, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Oh, you must go watch. I it's, didn't. it's quite entertaining, actually. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. I just thought it's quite interesting, just coming at the whole thing from another angle. Um, literally, crypto going into the legacy world and just buying the IP that's valuable. Um, it's going to be interesting to watch. I think. Yeah, did I mean, you guys see? Yeah, John's. No, no, go for it. No, I was just going to say uh, to 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 jump over. Uh, did did you guys see Budweiser? Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> Come on, that has got to be dot, dot ENS, eh? Yeah, <laughs> beer dot, 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 dot E. 
Oh, I mean, it must be funny to actually have a look at that address and see if they've been doing any transactions or if it's if it's literally just kind of a wallet with a bit of ETH in it. I ha- I haven't looked, but I now will. I now will. Yeah. Look. <laughs> 100 yeah, percent no but you know what was interesting you know what was so funny <laughs> you know what was so funny i don't know if you guys actually saw the whole twitter thing uh brantley milligan uh the director of operations of ens he tweeted i think it was literally randomly like today or yesterday he tre- he tweeted out and he was like i wonder which big company is going to be next to to uh you know drop their dot eth name and and come into ens and then he replied to his own tweet saying oh that was quick and then had a screenshot of Budweiser beer.eth. I mean, how good is that? And then I also saw another tweet like connected to that. I think someone was replying to Brantley's um, original tweet saying, um, guys, apparently, uh, you know, the owner of adidas.eth, this like some random has owned, like bought that ENS name. Apparently they've been put in touch with people at Adidas and they're trying to sort something out to buy the name of him. So and you know so i don't know let's see what comes from that uh maybe we'll be covering a adidas metaverse.eth uh topic in the next few weeks i wouldn't be surprised crazy crazy stuff. yeah i wouldn't be surprised either but boys do we uh, last topic for the evening um we talked about the bitcoin decks uh that squares tbd division was building uh well, well put up the published the white paper uh, to basically put out the intention to build this uh, decentralized exchange around censored around Bitcoin. Announced Monday that he is leaving Twitter after co-founding. John, are you going to are you playing a clip? Are you playing a clip for us or something? <laughs> 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 um, yeah. Anyway, uh, apologies for that uh, random random interference in the in the feed there um, from Mister Mister Galactic Q. Um, yeah. So. We covered that last week, breaking news, and uh, the guys have reflected on the white paper. We've given it a read. Um, guys, what are your thoughts on the white paper after digging more into it, and, and what do we think uh, is going to come out of this project? Uh, I mean, what's interesting, I guess, overall, is that you, you have this decentralized network um, of, of platforms, you've got service providers, you've got your wallets, and then you've got the legacy financial institutions. Um, and if you think about connecting these, um, this liquidity protocol is, is effectively a first stab at that, I would say. Enabling seamless on and off ramping um, into and out of crypto. So how, how, I mean, one of the ideas, one of the principal ideas effectively is you've got these decentralized credentials. Um, and it, it effectively, you can think of these almost as NFTs, right? It's some sort of data store. And you as a wallet provider, if you want to off-ramp, you basically put out an ask for cash. Um, and your your wallet provider basically queries kind of some set of these credentials uh, and requests bids from participating financial institutions to enable this off ramp. And so, so these financial institutions could, for example, have a look at your credentials and say, uh, you know what, there's there's not enough data behind these credentials um, for us to feel safe in settling this transaction. Then you, you might have kind of a, a, a more risk-taking institution come along and say, you know what, we're going to settle this transaction and effectively a smart contract is created, um, which sort of acts almost like an escrow between the wallet and, and the financial institution. And, it, and it's really remarkable because it's, it's all automated and effectively financial legacy financial institutions are migrated up into this decentralized web effectively and placed bids on asks yeah it's crazy it's great no it, it seems like a really really intricate solution they're building and, and luca it's interesting my thing is you know after the the initial hype of seeing the announcement does that make you more 
you know, excited just how they've set it up or how they intend to set it up? Um, you know, are you, do you, are you still carrying the same amount of hype or excitement for this as before? This this white paper is one of the best documents I've read in a very long time. It 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 fills me with this warm <laughs> energy. I, I just I just it, it almost feels like a bit of a watershed, you know. And it's not obviously not hyped a lot on Twitter at the moment, right? Um, but I, I guess what's remarkable is that it's sort of you know you have this idea of all these wallets floating around in space, right? And now all you're doing is you're saying you're going to have a bunch of institutions floating around in the space as well. And this, this, this proposal effectively is how do you, how do you allow these to communicate and kind of perform um, economic activities with each other? Bearing in mind, right, that there needs to be some, when you bridge into traditional finance, there needs to be some sort of trust element, right? Like when you, when you place an ask, right, and a bunch of institutions bid, you know, you do need to probably will have to reveal some sort of data about yourself, right? Because these institutions sit in some kind of regulatory environment and have their own requirements. Like this proposal um, accounts for all of these difficulties by effectively having these credentials, right? And you as the user of the network are not forced to do anything. You don't have to KYC. It just means that you're going to have less bidders potentially, right? If you want to off-ramp because institutions will probably have to have some sort of uh, idea of who you are um, before setting the transaction, right? But you might see, you know, some institution in the Cayman Islands and, you know, a bunch of people who, who use very slim credentials uh, will be transacting there. I think I think what's what's remarkable in general is this idea that you have these credentials and and obviously you know you have an incentive to protect these as well. Like you, if you have an address with which you interact in the metaverse, you know you, you you it's it's hard in this kind of fragmented open space to to build trust, right? So once you've built that, you're going to protect that, and that and and you could see kind of value accruing to these addresses in the sense that you'll have more options effectively when it comes to um, when it comes to off-ramping, for example. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I mean, you mentioned uh, not being hyped on Twitter. I know what is being hyped on, well, not being hyped, but I mean, what is definitely getting more attention. And funny that we're chatting about, uh, you know, this, this white paper, uh, you know, on the day that Jack actually retired uh, formally reti- announced his retirement from twitter or resignment sorry um formally breaking news actually today uh he, jack dorsey has resigned from twitter as ceo and uh i don't know about uh you two guys uh, i think we already spoke about this briefly offline uh but to everyone else i find this coming at a funny time after, you know, Square dropped, uh, you know, early, I think it was a couple of months ago, they'll, they'll be building out mining infrastructure uh, for Bitcoin mining. And now this uh, Bitcoin DEX, uh, the white paper last week coming from Square. And now this, Jack resigning from Twitter, probably opening up some more time on his calendar. And I think we know we know why. Uh, I, I, I will not be surprised if he comes out soon, or maybe he's not even come up, going to come out. It's just going to be, we're just going to see what, from what he's going to be doing and spending his time. I think he's going to go full-time crypto, go full-time square TBD. Uh, this, you know, this new DeFi division within square build out his Bitcoin infrastructure and, and basically essentially go full-time crypto, um, which is amazing to see. I don't know what you guys think about this. Well, didn't he, didn't he say in, his, in, in that article when he first released this white paper that he said um, if Bitcoin and cryptocurrency needs his help, he would leave Square and Twitter for it? So well, yeah, is, of course. Sorry, is, we mentioned that last week. Yeah, this is kind of like pushing on that whole narrative. I mean, it's almost like he was saying, hinting back then, I'm resigning soon <laughs> from Twitter at least. Um, but I, I, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I mean, and I'm, yeah, and, and I mean, but yeah. but I mean, I was gonna I was gonna say like this this 
Bitcoin DEX that he wants to build out within Square, it seems like a pretty technical problem and, it, and it's going to require a lot of work, a lot of thought, um, you know, and a lot of technicalities behind building out this infrastructure. So, I mean, surely that's going to take up a lot of his time now. And let's see how he executes on that. And I mean, he's probably waited up and he's been like, if I want to make this successful, you know, I probably need to just free up some time on my calendar. And, uh, you know, just to attend good hands. Just one more point, maybe. Just one more point, maybe, to kind of close in, well, close on the kind of scale of this overall. Because it's decentralized and it's just an idea for how financial institutions can act uh, with, so, so basically just an idea on how to bridge traditional finance with decentralized finance um, and Web3. That's a global, that's a global problem to tackle. If, if this becomes the kind of base protocol for stitching the two together, um, I mean, it's it's going to be, it's it's hard to fathom how big this could be. But it's not tied to any. It's not tied to any geography. The and, entire uh, idea of these these credentials distributed globally is is they'll vary by region. This it, this is not kind of placing any requirements on the system. It's 100%. effectively just providing a medium within which. Um, these kind of traditional structures and the structures of tomorrow can be stitched together. And I think that's, that's probably a a good note to leave on there. Well, you know, anything coming up in the next few weeks about Jack, about the Bitcoin decks, I'm sure we will cover it on here, Uh, but just probably, you know, a a lot of food for thought uh, for people listening to go and dig in more to what Jack square TBD division is doing with this Bitcoin decks um go and read their white paper have a look and and i think yeah guys thanks so much for for that episode that was great i'm pretty sure unless you have any last minute memes to throw in we're pretty much done here with another with another week of of content on the web3 show episode five next week guys (laughs) (laughs) this is crazy (laughs) love it small 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 wins um, thanks so much for those who joined us live tonight on call in and uh, we will be back like clockwork next week, Monday. Uh, see you all next week. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye.